If you're joining us for the first time, we are wrapping up a series. A lot of times here, we'll preach through whole books of the Bible. We're going to get back to that a little bit later down the road. We're wrapping up a series today called Mirage. We've been looking at some spiritual ideas that sound good. Um, in fact, contain some of them contain uh, some good nuggets of truth, but they're not the whole story. And oftentimes, these ideas end up hurting people. And so today we're going to look at something that I think a lot of you in here will be able to identify with uh, because there's a lot of people out there like me who are driven type A people. Now, I know not all of you, but there's a lot of you that you are very driven and you like to get things done. And actually, the way you feel about yourself is oftentimes very tied into how you feel like you're doing when it comes to succeeding, maximizing your potential, getting things done. And that's going to tie into the idea we're looking at here today. And that is the idea that maximizing your potential is a sacred responsibility. Now, I can tell you type A people are already starting to push back. Like, wait a minute, what's this guy saying up here, right? And so we'll get to that. But let me just say, it's no secret that maximizing potential is a big deal to us in America, is it? I mean, we know that. How many of you are old enough to remember the slogan that was the Army's slogan for 20 years from from 1981 on? Be all that you can be. That's right. Anybody remember the theme song? Be. I won't sing it. Uh, yeah. Be all that you can be, right? It was one of the most successful marketing campaigns of all times. Millions of dollars were spent. It was a very successful marketing campaign because it taps into this thing that's inside of us that feels like a very American idea, and that is that I need to maximize every bit of my potential in every area of my life, and it would be a crime and a shame to let anything fall by the wayside. In fact, uh, how many of you have used the phrase or thrown around the phrase that I want to be the best version of myself? Yeah, you've heard that a lot, haven't you? I mean, it's all over. If you listen to podcasts like me about getting stuff done and, you know, maximizing things and all that, this is, this is a common theme in our culture is, is maximizing my potential, being the best version of myself, making the best me that I can be for me and hopefully for others, but mostly for me. It's kind of a big idea in our culture. In fact, I did a little quick search on Amazon, a book search just to see how, how prevalent this theme was. And so I, I searched for maximizing life, and here's what we came up with. We've got maximizing fulfillment. We've got maximizing health, maximizing your body's pH factor. Uh, to start with, uh, maximizing your return on life and money, uh, maximizing the life of your hard drive, in case you're worried about that, um, maximizing connections one link at a time. Here we have some others. So let's see maximizing your single life. So that would be a good one to check out. Um, let's see. Maximizing your quality of life. Uh, maximizing wisely exploiting your life force. And uh, this is all page one, okay? Um, maximizing your enjoyment. Maximizing her. Apparently maximizing your poodle. Um, life's essentials. And then uh, maximizing your life affirmations. And check this out. Page one of 33. That was just page one, a 33 results. So this is kind of a big deal to us in our culture, isn't it? And here's the thing. 
This mentality and all these books, I'm, I'm not dissing on any of them. Um, I haven't read any of those. There's probably some great information in there about how to be more successful and how to accomplish things that you want to accomplish, okay? But here's the thing. As helpful as this mentality of maximizing your potential can be when it comes to getting things done and when it comes to succeeding in various areas of life, it's also oftentimes behind so much of the stress and the anxiety we feel and the tendency to push our life to the limits, to push our kids to the limits, to push our sanity and our schedules to the limits, to push our debt and our finances to the limits. And ultimately, I think when you boil down um, to what motivates and drives us, which is what I really want to get to today, what you find is largely it's fear. That a large part of this, this culture comes from fear. Several fears that are pretty common. The fear of missing out. That's something we're afraid of. Let me just talk to the young people in the room because if you're here and you're like, you know, under, under 20 or under 16, you never, you can't remember a time when you didn't have in real time on social media a reminder of what you're missing out on, right? I mean, for lots of us, when we were teenagers, you know, you didn't find out until next week. But you guys, it's like, and so I get it. That's hard, isn't it? When you see these guys hanging out with these guys, you're like, why, am I, why wasn't I invited? Why am I not here? And so a lot of times this drive to maximize everything, to push everything to the limits, comes from a fear of missing out. Oftentimes, actually, for younger people, that's why you, you find it so hard to commit to things. You know? So several of us that are a little bit older, we're like, just make a choice. But it's hard, isn't it? Because you don't, there's always something else and you see what you're missing out on on social media. We do this all the time when we compare our lives to others too. And now again, now we have a 24-7 way to compare our lives, our success, what we have, where we vacation, all these to a bunch of other people who we call friends, but come on, most of them you just met once or twice, right? And that drives so much of our motivation doesn't it? We compare our experiences, our kids, how successful our kids are, what we have, right? And oftentimes in the midst of all that, we've never even stopped to ask the question, do I even want that? It's just that they have it and we don't. So the fear of falling behind, the fear of falling behind others, the fear of falling behind what we perceive as how successful they are our coworkers, our friends, our family, family members. You know that that family member that just always is better than you at everything. And you're just like, Argh. and it's this fear, fear of falling behind. I think another fear is the fear of not being perceived as a success. And for some of you, you don't really struggle with this, but for others, especially those kind of type A in the room, um, this is kind of a big deal for us, isn't it? And there's a lot of motivation behind just that thing in us that fears not being perceived as successful, as accomplished, as competent in whatever area it is we're wanting to be perceived that way in, right? And here's the thing about this, this drive inside of us to maximize potential. Although it can be used for good, real good in our lives in many situations, many times it actually has the potential, if we're not careful, to draw us away from what matters most in life, 
to draw us away from an other-centeredness that Jesus would call us to and into a self-centeredness. And for many of you in seasons, and perhaps you're in this place right now, you have sacrificed peace because you bought into a lie that more is always better. And some of you, your biggest struggle right now is financial and it's because of debt and it's because of this whole thing and trying to keep up with the image and perception of success. That's just where you find yourself, right? Some of you have given up your joy. Some of you have have pushed aside a relationship and you have regrets because now of where you're at with your kids. And here's the thing. If you're just here for the first time kind of checking out God's Church in the Bible, we're so glad you're here. And this, this is a topic, I think, that applies to all of us. This isn't um, just a Christian thing or a non-Christian thing. This is just like a people thing, isn't it? Whether or not you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this, this is something we can all identify with because this is something we all struggle with. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a critical thing for you to connect with, a critical thing for you to understand because the way that Jesus calls us to live and the motivations behind the heart of what Jesus calls us to move towards are very different from the predominant thrust of our society. And so to help us kind of wrestle with this today, I want to look at a passage um, by a man who walked away from an incredible amount of potential wealth and leadership and a career that was just headed up and to the right, hockey stick. It's what you want to see, right? And his career was doing that. And in walking away from that, specifically for the purpose of obeying Jesus' call on his life, he ultimately suffered incredibly, more than you or I probably will ever have to go through in our lives. Uh, he often lived in poverty, and ultimately he gave his life as a martyr for Jesus. And his peers at the time, when his career was, you know, going right and and up at a rapid pace, would have looked at his life and go, what a waste. What a waste of potential. But history has a different way of looking at it. Because he is the man that arguably did more for the spread of the message of Jesus than any other man that lived in the first century other than Jesus himself. And the guy's name is the Apostle Paul. You've heard of him before. You know who he is. He did amazing stuff. He ended up writing almost half of the New Testament. And today we're going to look at a portion of a letter that he wrote to a small church he planted in a town called Philippi, which is in, in modern day Greece. And here's what he says, starting in uh, Philippians chapter one, if you want to follow along, we're going to be in 27, then we're going to fast forward, uh, skip ahead to chapter two and look at one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. And we're reading today out of the New American Standard Version because my mom uh, made me memorize this and my brother when I was 12. And so to me, any other version just doesn't sound right because I still have this committed uh, to memory, most of it. And so here's how it goes. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he says there's a, there's a way of living your life that is worthy of the gospel. And part of that is because the gospel brings this incredible oneness. If you're living right, it brings unity. The body of Christ, we're supposed to be united around purpose. So when you look at your underlying motivating, um, the motivation for your life, it's the gospel. 
to see the message of Jesus, the good news that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died for you and me, that we can have salvation through faith in him, that Jesus Christ is Lord. To see that message spread, to see that message bear fruit in our lives, to see that message spread around the world is what we should be, have one heart and mind, one focus on. That should be the passion and burning thing in our hearts. Now, Paul knows we've got jobs, we've got bills, we've got all this stuff. You got to get up, you got to make a living, right? But on a deeper level than all of that, when you wake up in the morning, this should be your burning passion and desire of our heart. Man, I think if we lived like this, it would transform our nation again, like it did in the first century, wouldn't it? If we really had this and if we really had this oneness of motivation and oneness of purpose. And then he goes on, skip to verse 29. He says this, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Get how like different this is. See, Paul is writing this letter literally chained up in a Roman prison. We read about this in other spots in his writings. He's in a desperate situation. He's just wrote them and told them that he doesn't know if he's going to get out of this alive. He thinks he is. He thinks God's going to spare him because he thinks God that, that there's still work for him to do for Jesus. And so he's confident he's going to come and get to see them again. But he's, he's rotting in a prison cell while he writes this to them. And so look at how different this is from kind of our, our cultural mantra of making much of myself and maximizing me and being the best version of all that I can be and all, all of that for the sake of me. He says, no, wow, you don't understand how lucky you are. Because to you, you don't get to just believe in Jesus. You get to suffer for him. Lucky you, you're so fortunate. Most followers of Jesus only get to believe in him. I mean, come on. If we're honest, that you know, some of you, you you've lost... Um, you know, maybe you missed an opportunity, a business opportunity, because you wouldn't compromise what you knew Jesus was calling you to do in that situation. And you call that suffering. And Paul would go, wow, lucky you. You're so lucky. You get to identify with Jesus and what he suffered. Lucky you. You're so fortunate. You're so lucky. You got to sell everything and move to a developing nation. Lucky you. See, it's impossible to think this way. What, Paul, suffering? It's been granted? What, what are you talking about? It's impossible to think this way if you only have a here and now perspective, isn't it? But Paul really believed that, like he said a little earlier in this book, to live is Christ and to die is gain because you go and be with Christ. And so to live is for Christ. That's what living is all about. And he really believed that there will be a day when the who's who list will be rewritten. Perfect example is his life, right? He was on the who's who list of leadership in, his, in, in Jerusalem, on the trajectory of leadership and success and privilege and wealth. And he walked away from it all. Well, even in this life, we see how history has been rewritten and the impact he's made on, on the world. And the fact that we're talking about him 2,000 years later, when you don't remember any of the other names of his peers, I bet. 
And so he believes this. And the only way you can actually celebrate this and live like this is if you believe in more than a here and now perspective, that there's a day when things will be rewritten. And so he goes on. And now he's going to set up and expose the biggest mindset that will keep you from living a life worthy of the gospel. How you live a life that's not just focused on you and, and your little kingdom and maximizing your self for the sake of yourself, but actually living your life in the light of eternity. He says this in verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, this was very countercultural then, and it's still very countercultural. You hear nods to humility and selflessness in our culture. We celebrate that, and the reason is because of Jesus. The reason is because these writings of Paul have been circulating for 2,000 years. But when you just look at what's encouraged and uh, at the behavior and the self-centeredness that has become kind of the mantra of so many things in our culture, it's not where culture is pointing you, is it? It's, it's very countercultural. See, culture is all about making much of me, isn't it? And here's how this creeps into our thinking about faith. Um, even Jesus, the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as what? As yourself. Oftentimes in our culture, this gets turned into an argument for more self-focus and being better at loving yourself. Now, here's the thing. I know some people really struggle with self-image issues. And I know, you know, some of you, you've got baggage and trauma from your childhood, and, and I understand that, and you really, really struggle because of that. You need freedom from that, and Christ is helping you, Lord willing, to find freedom in that as you get counseling, as you do things. So I understand that. But I would say, by and large, for the vast majority of us, um, no one had to teach you to be selfish or self-focused, did they? I mean, even if you struggle with some of these other issues... Nobody had to t teach you to be focused on yourself. It kind of comes natural, doesn't it? Your parents didn't have to teach you to be more self-focused. They had to teach you to do what? Share. They didn't, right? They didn't have to teach you. They had to teach you not to be greedy, didn't they? Because this is just, we're born this way. We're born thinking that life is all about us. If you have kids, you know this, right? The tantrums of a two or three-year-old as they discover that, you know, life isn't all about them. And they hate it. But come on, we're just grown-up kids, aren't we? And you've just learned how to control your outward behavior a little bit better, but you're throwing tantrums too on a frequent basis when you figure out life's not all about you. And you're bumping heads with that, and you hate it, don't you? And it's that thing inside that's constantly struggling between making life all about ourselves and living the way we know Jesus has called us to live. Um, another one where, 
we kind of get this idea of maximizing your gifts and your talents, making the most of all you have. And it kind of creeps into our spiritual thinking and this spiritual idea that you got to, you know, maximize everything, leave nothing on the table. And that comes from this little parable Jesus told called the parable of the talents. And it was about these three managers. They were entrusted with these talents, right? And the first two did something. They multiplied them. The last one didn't do anything, buried a hole, put it in the ground. And boy, oh boy, you, you wanted to be the first two, not the third one. And here's how it often, how this often gets translated is you got to do everything with the, any potential in your life. You have to develop it to the absolute max of, of what's in, in your life. And we often couch this in real spiritual terms. Whatever your gifts or talents are, you got to do everything in your power to maximize them. But here's where this is dangerous, and here's where I think this idea oftentimes hurts people. First off, the problem is um, the word talent in the Greek um, was a monetary instrument for, for Romans. So what he's really talking about is stewarding money in the parable. But we just read talent, and we think the English word talent, right? So all my talent I have to maximize and do everything I can do with. But that wasn't really the main point of the parable. The main point of the parable isn't about maximizing potential. It's a warning not to ignore what God has assigned you to do. It's about obeying him, obeying the master, being faithful with what he's entrusted to you to and the task that he's asking you to do. And it's a warning about not doing anything for the master. And there's a significant and vital difference in the two. An author and speaker, pastor that, that I respect a lot, I got to meet him in person a while back, said this. His name's Larry Osborne. He says, potential is not a sacred responsibility. Potential is a harsh mistress, seductive, never satisfied, prone to exaggeration, nearly impossible to figure out. Those who pursue her inevitably end up in the poisoned land of self-centered priorities and me first decisions. See, God has much more important concerns for you than just maximizing your potential. Don't misunderstand me or read into this something I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't do your best. But here's what I'm saying. It is, is if maximizing your potential very quickly becomes all about me, doesn't it? Very quickly becomes all about making the most of me, becoming the most successful version of me. And the hard part about this is there's never a finish line, is there? There's never a point where you go, ah, I've arrived. And some of you know that tension because that's the thing that drives you into unhealthy places. That's the thing that drives you into neglecting some relationships of those closest to you that you, you regret now or you're on the path to regretting. That's the thing that's driven you as you compare your life to other people to get into the kind of debt you're in, to make the choices you made on what you drive or where you live, all those kinds of things. And it hasn't brought peace in your life. As Larry says, it's, it's a harsh mistress. See, Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you will maximize your potential. What did he say? If you love me, you will what? 
obey my commands. And see, the biggest things he gives us to do are love God and love others. And those most on our top priority list are those closest to us. And oftentimes those are the people that suffer the most from this idea. See, many times maximizing my potential is at odds with obeying Jesus. What do I do when, when I know to obey Jesus in this area? I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's not good for my career. It's not good for my perception of being a success. What do I do when I know that maximizing me and my potential in this area is going to wind up hurting my family? This is the tension we face. And underlying that, the, the only way you can really get to the heart of this and answer those questions for yourself is to really ask the question, what's my motivation? What's my motivation? Is the underlying motivation of my heart to make much of me or to make much of Jesus? And to filter some of these decisions through that, why am I really upgrading that house? Good question to ask. Why am I really upgrading to that car? Why am I really accepting that promotion? Why am I really striving so hard in this area? Why am I really trying to take that next jump up the ladder of success, right? Why am I really driving my kids to play all those sports? What's that really about? He goes on in verse five. He says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes into a poem, an ancient poem. And scholars debate, we don't know if Paul wrote this or if this was a poem that had been circulating that people know and he's quoting it. But it's a poem about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And in the Greek, this has a poetry to it. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this poem wraps up like this, and I think it's some of the most beautiful words in the New Testament. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, can I just take a little bunny trail for those who might be a little more nerdy in the room? Or actually, really, for those that may be a little skeptical, those that may, you, you know, you, 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 you grant Jesus was a great moral teacher, you know, but you're just not sure about all this supernatural stuff. You're just not sure about his claims of, of being God. You see, part of the thing that circles around that idea is an idea that maybe you heard in, in, in a class somewhere. And that's this idea that this, the, the idea of Jesus' divinity didn't come around until much later. Jesus never made these claims. Um, we just taught through the whole book of Luke. We saw how untrue that is. How frequently the claims that Jesus made 
were so hard to avoid. But what you see here in this little passage is scholars almost unanimously agree that Paul was an actual person who lived and wrote in the first century and that this little book was written maybe 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, probably in the 50s AD, 20 to 30 years. So what you often hear is way later, all these things started emerging in the church and it's simply not true because what this shows us is already in poem form, way too soon for legend or mythology to come around, already in poem form, you had this idea of who Jesus is, the idea, the idea behind the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And of the Son coming, fully God, and yet coming to this earth to give his life, becoming human. We call it the incarnation. And you have this idea already. 20, just 20 to 30 years, we see it expressed here. In fact, just as, as Paul wraps this up, Jesus Christ is Lord he uses this term in, in Greek, kurios, and it, it mirrors, uh, let me, this is good, a little nerdy, so stick with me for just like two minutes, and then we'll get back to the main point. You're going to go to the next slide. See, in the Old Testament, the word Yahweh, which is how we pronounce it, we really don't know how it was pronounced because three to 400, uh, 400 years before Jesus, um, ancient Hebrew people quit saying or speaking the name of God, Yahweh, out loud when they'd read the scriptures. They'd substitute it for the word Adonai, which meant my Lord. And so when, when the Bible was translated into a version called the Septuagint, which was a couple, 300 years before Jesus, into the Greek, which became the language that all the early um, New Testament writers quoted from all the time. They quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures. And they translated it into this word kurios. And the word kurios is the Greek equivalent of the word Yahweh. And so what Paul does is he makes that quote, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Paul always refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's doing is he's, is he's saying the Lord is equivalent in the Old Testament to writing Yahweh. He's quoting from an old text in Isaiah that says, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh in Hebrew, in Greek it's kurdios, thus says the Lord, who made heaven that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God. And see, things like this are all over the New Testament, both in Jesus' claims himself and in the understanding of the very first writers of the New Testament. And so that's really something. If you struggle with just knowing who Jesus is and you know he was a good teacher and all that, you really have to wrestle with this. You really have to, to understand because I believe Jesus, if a guy can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I think there's only one good explanation for that, don't you? All right, moving on. Bunny trail done. Back to the point, main point. Is he goes, we'll go back to verse five for just a second. He says, have this attitude in yourselves. You see what we see in Jesus' life? So he it says he empties himself, which doesn't mean he, he ceased to be God while he was on earth. Not at all. It means he gave up the rights and the privileges and came to earth in a human body. And he emptied himself. He became what? A servant. A bond servant. Somebody who's become a slave by choice. 
He became a servant. He humbled himself. He was obedient to death on a cross. And what Paul is doing us is showing us what the God of the universe is really like. And in a day when they thought of greatness and divinity in terms of guys like Alexander the Great, you know, who took over the throne at age 20, proceeded to conquer the rest of the world in 10 years, died a few years later, but he was seen, began to be seen as divine. Or Augustus, who in this town actually rolled through, it was the place where the last battle of the Roman civil wars came to an end. Again, Octavian became Caesar Augustus, and he was viewed as divine. So there's this idea of power and authority, and it's about me, and everybody's here to serve me. And Paul says, no, you want to understand what the one true God is like. It's, he, he's not. He's humble. He he's, serves. You want to understand your role to model when it comes to living and maximizing who God's created you to be? It's not all about you becoming the best version of you for the sake of you and your little kingdom. You want to succeed in life and do a great job? Absolutely. And so did Paul. He accomplished more than you and I will ever accomplish. But he knew the motivation. He served. Just like Jesus said in Mark, that world rulers lord it over their subjects, but it mustn't be like that with you. With you, the ruler must be the slave because the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And see, serving is often at odds with what we perceive as maximizing our potential. And unless you do, do business with this thing in your heart and this root motivation and come to the conclusion that my life is really about serving God and serving those he's placed in my life, you're always going to struggle with this tension. And because your tendency is always towards self-promotion and your little K kingdom, that's what you're going to pick and that's what you're going to choose. And you know what? You'll probably get some praise for it here and now. But see, as followers of Jesus, we don't live for the praise of here and now, do we? And see, this, this is how the rubber meets the road. This pastor that I got to meet and do this leadership thing with, Larry Osborne, um, he, he writes about how when his kids, his son was younger, he was working on his third book, and his son said, I, I don't like it when daddy writes books. I never see him. And for him, he understood in that moment what he needed to do. And he put his success and prestige on hold. And he said, until my kid's out of high school, I'm going to quit writing books. 18 years later, he wrote his next book. Now, he's seen incredible fruitfulness in his ministry. But he says, I'm never going to get those years back. But that was the choice he made. I heard a story about a college president that retired in his mid-50s way sooner than he ever would have to because he had to care for his wife with advanced Alzheimer's. He chose to. He didn't have to. But he just knew that's what God was calling him to do in that moment. I have a friend who shut down a highly successful business partnership in order to have the freedom to stay home with her kids. Now, I don't know what God's calling you to do. He may not be calling you towards any of those specific things. 
But you need to wrestle with the underlying motivations of your heart whenever you're attempted or whenever you're tempted to place maximizing yourself, your potential, your glory over those things that you know are the most important or those things that you know God is calling you to or has called you to in Scripture. One more time. I don't want to read this aloud. I'm going to invite Winston to come up. I want to read this aloud. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we're going to close here with a song. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we just let you go. But as we close, listen, I, I want to reiterate. What I'm saying isn't that being successful is wrong. We have some incredibly successful people in this church who use their success for the furtherance of the kingdom of God as a platform to fund, to work for the kingdom of God. I'm not saying being successful is wrong. On the contrary, some need to get more serious about life, right? You need to take on some responsibility. You need to put down the halo joystick. Take responsibility for those in your life. Remember the guy who wrote this passage, who did this thing which is so difficult for us to live. And sometimes for a type A, it maybe seems so unrealistic, right? Or so like it'll get in the way of you getting to stuff that you want to get to in life. Remember, he's the guy who single-handedly took on the whole Mediterranean rim and spread the gospel. When all the other apostles were to the Jews, pretty much, he said, I'll take the rest of the world. And he went on to lead teams that reached and planted churches all over. You know, in an age consumed by success, um, some of you, your greatest legacy will be someone you raise or influence. That's why we, we see it so important to, to give you resources and to encourage you to have spiritual conversations at home with your kids because ultimately we only have them that much every week and your influence is so much greater. That's what that own point center is all about, right? You know, the truth is in 50 years after we die, nobody, most of us in this room, nobody's going to know our names. I mean, think about it. How many of you, how many of your kids know their great grandparent or especially their great, great grandparents name? Your own kids, their own relatives, right? So the truth is, most of us aren't going to accomplish things in this life that are so noteworthy that anybody's going to be talking about us. You know what? That's okay. Because what's most important is being obedient to what God has called you to. Being faithful to the place he's called you. To placing his agenda and the well-being of those around you at a higher priority than you. To maximizing your serving of other people. Obedience is much greater than maximize potential. And so as we close today, I want to ask you just a couple questions. What am I striving for that's, about, that's more about making much of me 
than much of Jesus? What am I sacrificing in my drive for success? Do you have something that you know you're sacrificing that you're going to regret later? Nobody sits on their dying bed and wishes they'd spent more time in the office. Is maximizing my potential causing me to neglect love? I want to invite you to stand. We're going to close with one song. And as we close, you can sit or actually stand, whatever you want to do. But what I want to encourage you is just ponder those questions. And if there's something like that in your life, would you just surrender it to him? Surrender it to Jesus? And say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with this area of my life. I'm going to trust that you're able to, to take care of this while I'm taking care of the things that I know you've called me to. I'm going to put my success in your hands, my reputation in your hands. Let's sing.